Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. Today, we continue our series, Surviving My Biggest Case, and you know this best <laughs> guest, it is Jennifer Koffendoffer. Her career in federal law enforcement spanned over 28 years and included extensive investigative operational leadership and training experiences. She was a special agent with the FBI, specializing in gang, narcotics, and organized crime. And now she does a lot of work with uh, News Nation as an analyst covering crime stories. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joel. Always love being here. And uh, as I say, this series, and I was just telling Jennifer this off camera, it's basically as though Jen and I meet at Starbucks, sit down, and I ask her about her biggest case. I don't even know what she's going to tell me. So, Jen, um, without further ado, what is the uh, biggest case that you've quote-unquote survived? Uh, tell me about it, and uh, I'll ask you some follow-up questions. Well, Joel, it's interesting because when I hear the word biggest, I always think, well, does that mean the, the case that really had the most impact or the most uh, the case that took me the longest to do or the case that we had the most arrests? But I clearly dialed in on this particular case. Um, this case was dubbed Los Tios. So in the FBI, we have code names for our cases. In fact, we run them through just like our informants. Everybody has a, a code name, so we never use real names, right? So the Los Tios case started, interestingly, I think, uh, off of another case called Snowbreaks, a uh, snow meaning cocaine. So this was a big organized crime case. And this is the case that uh, some will read in, in my bio, uh, talks about going back to a Medellin cartel a cell uh, that we took down in Houston. And this case just had everything. It had murder, it had intrigue, it had informants, it had mess ups, it had um, amazing fun takedowns. This was when uh, really working drugs was like the Scarface days. Uh, it was in the 90s and it was the ultimate of excitement. As an example, if you seized a car, that car was yours. That car was yours to drive around. So uh, it was really a case, uh, it was really a time frame where uh, the drug and narcotic trafficking world was expansive. The FBI in Houston, which is where I was assigned at that time, had seven seven organized crime slash drug squads. That is big. After 9-11, I think there's only two left, right? And everybody started working uh, counterterrorism and foreign counterintelligence matters. But that tells you the volume of the types of cases we were working. So this case, Los Tios, uh, we call it that because there were two uncles. They were actually two brothers, but we called it Los Tios. And they were brothers uh, that were actually from uh, the Medellin area of Colombia. And this was back, Joel, when before really the Mexicans made their mark in terms of drug trafficking. This was back when I used to call it the IBM days of cartels, where you had these individuals that were uh, intelligent, educated, um, 
they were amazing businessmen and they ran cells and distribution networks within the United States. They came over, they set up the operations and they had people work within their distribution networks that expanded really uh, the um, from East Coast to West Coast. This particular cell uh, that we worked on, uh, the uh, dope uh, cocaine in this case was brought in approximately 1500 kilos every week through this distribution network. And this distribution network distributed clear up through Chicago into New York, and then the money was then transferred back out, typically back through, believe it or not, Miami. So it was a huge expansion network. Yeah, <laughs> that I, it, you believe that, right? That's, yeah. I mean, that's where a lot of these individuals really lived and set up shop. And, and I'm talking about the muckety-mucks. These guys never used Joel. Mm. These, these guys were businessmen. Uh, you, if you saw them on a plane, you couldn't tell the difference between them and, and an executive at, at Dell Computers. There's no way to tell the difference. That's the kind of people we were dealing with. And their distribution networks, unfortunately, uh, like they were, uh, were ruthless. And uh, if you messed up, if you lost a load, you died, you were murdered. And, uh, you know, it was definitely for me, uh, looking back, was that the first time I ever saw dead bodies up close and personal? I think it was uh, yeah. my first case that ever really had to deal with those murders and all of that. Wow. So this, so this I'm reminds rambling me, on, Joel. I'm rambling. No, no, no. This, this reminds me so much of uh, Cocaine Cowboys here in Miami, uh, just kind of crazy time. That was the 80s. Um, but, you know, I worked in local news here and I remember I talked to some old timers, uh, reporters. They wouldn't even go out. You know, now if there's a homicide, they cover it. But back then in the 80s, it had to be like a quadruple homicide. There were so many murders in Miami back then. If it wasn't like a quadruple homicide, they weren't covering it for the news because so many bodies were piling up because of the drugs. But it's interesting. Uh, and we had a guy on this show before we were true crime all the time. And I, I'm glad you said that. His name is Luis Navia. And uh, there's been books written about him. He worked for Pablo Escobar. And he's here in Miami. And when he came on the show, he looks like an accountant. Like he's just a well-dressed guy wearing a checkered polo shirt. He had got, you know, done his time in federal prison. But he literally looked like an accountant. Ne never in a million years, if you were sitting next to him on a plane... Would you think that this guy was running drugs for Pablo Escobar? But uh, same thing. He never used. He told me he never, ever used. But uh, they were they were ruthless. So um, this was obviously very early on in your career. It's Houston. Um, and by the way, how much is what was the street value on fifteen hundred kilos? I have no idea. Well, in the wholesale world, it depended, right? If you were selling it in Houston, it'd be 15 to 17 a kilo. But as you go further uh, to the East Coast and in Chicago, those numbers were in the 20s and in the 30s. It was, it, you know, a huge markup. And remember, this is wholesale, pretty much pure Coke from uh, Colombia. So, mm. uh, you know, cut down and cut down, I mean, it's worth tens of thousands of dollars when you consider uh, the small amount that really of that kilo ended up being distributed and wow. how much people would pay for that. And obviously, uh, I don't know Spanish, but I, knew, I do know Tio means uncle. So it's Los Tios, the, the, the uncles. So 
Uh, tell me, take me back, you know, kind of illustrate it. You're in your FBI office. They come to you and they just, they say, this is your assignment. What do you have to do? Well, so this is how it happened. There was another case, as I mentioned earlier, called Snow Breaks. And that was a huge case in Houston where they were actually bringing the cocaine inside of tires. So you would have these 18 wheelers and inside those wheels or tires actually was all the kilos of cocaine. So that was a huge case. And it was brought down by one of my mentors. I'll just mention the first name because I don't know if he wants me to put his last name out. Most most of my mentors, sadly, uh, many of them, I just had another one just passed away last week. Um, I mean, sorry, last month. So unfortunately, a lot of my mentors are actually um, you know, unfortunately uh, passing on. But this one is still alive, Rob. And he took down this huge case. This was a, a huge case. And one of the main players, his girlfriend became an informant. He did an amazing, masterful job turning her. Now, remember, this woman was, you know, lovers with one of the main guys. Wow. And so it's not an easy thing uh, to say, listen, you know, you're. Uh, Paramour is going to prison for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go to prison for a great part of your life, or you can help us. Wow. And she had a very minimal role. And so that's why that could be offered to her. And that's when I got the ticket, Joel. And wow. this ticket, we call it the ticket, right? Yeah. Hey, Jen, you get in this ticket. So, um, it was huge because it was very early in my career. And I felt really, I, before then, I had worked a lot of drug cases, but smaller. I had just come off of a pretty big one, about 35, 40 kilos uh, that we took clear into Tennessee. And I actually moved to Tennessee and, and through the trial uh, to take that case to trial. And so it was kind of coming off the heels of that. And my supervisor, I'll never forget him calling me over. Uh, Dick Ludwig was his name. He unfortunately has passed. And he said, Jen, you know, let's see what you can do with this. And we built uh, such an amazing relationship. Uh, In fact, just as a side note, Ava Longoria and her group, Imagine, uh, and CBS, NBC, ABC at different times have each bought the rights. Uh, to the story Uh, right now you know we kept getting beat out by scorpions and then we got beat out by quantico and i get the the, really i think the case and and not just the case but the relationship between her and i and and what we did over about three years would have really gone uh but there was a huge argument over the name and i know you know hollywood and what this is all about was so hilarious and i said we have to name it the fbi it's as simple as that. And mm. then you know what happened, right? Of course, the FBI show was named the FBI. And, yeah. and you know, we, our, our name uh, didn't make it, uh, which was the real deal. But all of that aside. Um, so she, this, hasn't, this hasn't been made into a movie yet? No. Okay. No. And I, and I don't know if it, it actually was supposed to be a television series. It was purchased. Um I think they spent several million, I mean, bringing it to uh, the stage of having people where you come in and you look at it, you do a trailer. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was purchased 
uh, CBS uh, wow. bought it. Um, but, you know, it has to make it through all these stages. And I think that year we got beat out by scorpions. And then there were several other attempts and it never took flight. Um, but this woman was amazing, Joel. First of all, she was beautiful. She was smart. This is the girlfriend. This was the girlfriend. He became and my informant. You, so this is your, oh, she became your, okay. I was going to say, because you said it was your boss who basically was the one that brought her on board. But then you, how did you get involved with her? Well, so not really my boss, but my mentor. So yeah. the, the case agent that took down Snowbreaks, mm -hmm. he developed her in an interview. In other words, when I say developed her through time, he can he he convinced her to give the nod that she would cooperate. He was busy with snow breaks and handling all the trial and everything else to do with that case. So that's when my boss, um, you know, met with me and said, "We're going to give you this ticket. We're going to give you her to try to develop, to try to see if you guys can make a case, try to see what she knows and what's out there." And so this was amazing because. Just to have an opportunity with somebody who is that connected, first of all, with an organized crime organization that is that big. And then from there to have a chance to start at a seed, right? The infancy and try to develop a case into something big. And so it was, it was really, really amazing. Um, so I worked with her. Uh, I was a new agent, meaning a couple years in. So, of course, I was given a mentor, Rich, who I love. Uh, Rich was, again, a guy that taught me so much, so much. And he, though, was kind of the guy that certainly was at the desk, making every, you know, getting all the money, setting everything up, um, working the admin side. In a lot of ways, certainly the strategic side too. And then I was the girl on the street running with the informant, uh, working with what she had. We set up a storefront. Uh, we started a uh, Title III wiretap based on information we developed. So we were listening to everybody's phones. Um, we had a lookup set out uh, with an amazing guy, Mark, who I teased became like the, um, the Amityville horror guy. <laughs> Mark, we set him up in this apartment that overlooked the uh, storefront. Now, this storefront was kind of like a one-stop shop for big-time dope dealers. You could go in there and make calls. You could buy cell phones. She would get your car registered. She would do anything for these guys for a huge price. Wow. Uh, so we, and, and you were her. working, you were working like alongside her at the store. And no, she no, no, no. Oh, okay. No, no, I was never, I was never seen. So, um, when you have somebody that's an informant, they have to have somebody that 24 seven are in touch with you and okay. you're guiding them. So I would be the one outside the store in the area. Um, handling the surveillance of people leaving so she God. would say where's the you know something like oh jen you've got to follow this guy he's in a blue car i'm gonna get his car registered he's huge right over the phone so wow. then i would be outside with the surveillance team 
a mobile surveillance team ready to rock and roll. So then we would go and follow those people and develop who their associates were, who they were, where they were going, what they were doing. And that's kind of how that worked. Well, and this is this is like fascinating to me. By the way, I never knew the expression get you get the ticket, but you got the ticket on this. So um she would basically tip you off on these people. Um, was it, by the way, was this like every day you'd be by this store? Was it like a full-time job for you where you're literally every day you were, you were just there, she's feeding you the information. And then, you know, let's say she says a guy in the blue car is a big deal. You go follow him. How much, how much time would that kind of divert away from you being by the store then? Oh, I wasn't always by the store, right? Of course, as soon as we would get that important lead, we would be diverted off to work that. And remember, at the same time, we're also working a wire. So we we have a whole squad on this, probably half a squad, uh, I think, uh, probably half a squad, full half of a squad we were leading in terms of the wiretap. So at the same time, remember, we're overhearing those conversations that are occurring at the cell phones. And let me say too, the only reason I can talk about this, normally I would never get into this much detail on a case. The reason I can talk about it is because we indicted 50 people. Wow. And we went to trial on part of those individuals. And because of that, she testified. Uh, of course, I testified. Um, and we had to disclose the wiretaps. Everything was disclosed. And so that's why once you go to trial, other than that, like on other cases, you know, I can't really talk about them. And you might say, well, Jen, that doesn't make sense because the cases are over. But you don't want to e even now, you know, being in the media, you don't want to disclose, uh, you know, some of the things, you know, um, it, it's, you know, you just don't. It's it's really hard for me to watch everything going on with Epstein because I was the SSRA in the Virgin Islands when all that was going on. Crazy. Uh, They're about to reveal yeah. when people are watching this, they will have revealed those names, I think. Um it's gonna yeah. be that's that's uh that's big news. Um so back to this though. Um yes. First of all, it's also before really the advent of everyone having a cell phone in their hand. So what kind of challenges were there like pre, you know, ubiquitous technology? Were, how, were there moments where you're like, oh, crap, I can't get in touch with the informant or she can't get in touch with me? Um, what was that like? Well, we did the majority of everything we did via pager. Mm. And this was by this time we could have pagers that not only could tell or could give a phone. Right. But we could also text to a very limited degree, like emergency, call me, so on and so forth. And it was so hard, Joel. I mean, you would have to literally go and to pay phones and call somebody. I mean, people can't probably even relate to that. Yeah. Um, thankfully, she had pay phones. And you, so drug agents, FBI agents did not have cell phones as a whole, but drug agents, we did have brick phones. Mm. which and actually by this time we had these like panasonic gray flip phones <laughs> like they were huge and our brick phones were hilarious but it was so cost prohibitive i mean you were not allowed to have a conversation 
it could just be, you know, okay, I'll meet you at the corner of such and such hang up because I don't remember the cost, but it was outrageous how much these phones were. Yeah. So it was hard, Joel. It was yeah, hard. And, you used to, and you used to get billed by the minute uh, back in the day. Um, so this 100%. is obviously not only uh, incredibly dangerous for you, but incredibly dangerous for the informant because if the informant is a made woman, she's dead, right? Um, so how, how careful... I mean, you've got to be extremely careful. Uh, was there ever ever uh, what you thought was a close call where you may have thought you were found out? Yes, there was a close call when I thought, well, there were more than one close calls, but there was one where for sure she thought she was going to die. And this was actually we had to take the case down. Um, we were in Miami. Uh, she was doing a money load. So. Informants, there's a lot of very serious rules uh, in terms of like handling dope. You you can't handle, it's not like the movies, you can't handle 1,500 kilos of cocaine or any amount of cocaine as a, as a um, dope dealer. You can get what we call authorized uh, criminal um, activity. You can get special authorization for very specific situations, but we, you can handle Joel. And so we were very good about manipulating this is you can handle money. Mm. And so um, she became an amazing courier as well. And we were in Miami. We had just picked up, I say we, she did it. She went and picked up a million or two, can't remember the amount right now, um, from a house in Long Island. And uh, myself and my partner, Rich, were there. It was just the two of us. Uh, obviously, you always let the other office know. So certainly New York office, we worked closely with them. Joey D was the contact there anyway. Got the money, brought it back uh, to Miami. And again, once you get it to the Miami people, those are the big people, right? They're no longer in the distribution. These are the people that are getting the money back to Colombia. Yeah. So these are- how do, you, how do you take a million or two million, I guess, in cash back to Miami? How do you do that? That's a lot. That's oh, a big just big a duffel bag. Really? Duffel bag. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been in there counting it, you know, and those were dangerous times when uh, the money would be in a closet, say- and she would let us know the money's in there. Well, we had to corroborate everything, right? So we would set up surveillance and then I'd run in, uh, typically me, and, and I'll tell you why I did so much of the um, peripheral undercover, not the deep undercover in this case, but the peripheral is because no one suspected I was an FBI agent, really ever in my career. I mean, one time I badged somebody uh, to go interview them. This was a president of a company and the secretary looked at me and said, oh, this is great. You're a stripper, right? You're going, this is a joke because we did the joke to his buddy. I no, I, I really with the FBI. Of course, I was much younger than Joel uh, in my 20s. And so um, anyway, the bottom line is, so you go in there and count it and people might think, wow, a million dollars must be huge. No, it fits in a little duffel bag. Wow. Not like that. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, and you get on a plane with that? You got well, she got on a plane with it. Okay. Uh, but um, actually, actually, in this case, let me make sure I recall right. She, we obviously were on planes to get there. 
she picks up the money and then it's driven to Miami. Okay. Driven to Miami. Okay. That makes, I guess, a little more sense. So, Mm -hmm. um, and is this the time that she almost gets caught? Is this? Yeah. Yeah. How it turned south was, and this was a huge lesson that I always say in law enforcement, and I know people are so critical of law enforcement, but you have so many decisions that are being made and they're being made very quickly. And there's a lot of factors going in. I'm not trying to make it of excuses. I'm trying to make explanations for how, you know, you can make mistakes. And in this case, we were at a beautiful Marriott, I think in Coral Gables, it was beautiful. And uh, we were down there and she was there. We had another informant that we had introduced so we could even have more couriers. So now we had two informants. We had the bad guys, right? The distribution people. And then we had the people they were going to meet with. So there's a lot of, a lot going on. And we're working with uh, Miami, FBI Miami, and trying to keep everybody under some sort of surveillance without being detected. And what happened was, is one of the agents made contact with a valet at that hotel. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you why they did it. And I and this is this is one of these things that it's so difficult. So you have to make a decision, right? There's no way to follow somebody and there's no way to see something unless you're parked in certain spots. Mm-hmm. And and so you have to make that decision. You know, well, if I'm going to park here, you know, uh, and this this decision was made by an agent. And the only problem I had with this decision is I was the case agent. He needed to let me know. And he did it. He made the decision to let the valet know he was with law enforcement and he needed to stay parked there. Now, there's hundreds of people in this hotel. I, I would say thousands in and around it, right? Going to the pool, dropping off people, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he didn't say who he was watching, anything like that. He just said, you know, he badged him and said, well, that information, and this was a lesson we all learned the hard way. And I learned after that, you can never, ever trust anyone. That valet, and I don't know how I don't know if there was an arrangement made with one of the other bad guys. I know the informant didn't know anything about it. Called up and said, you know, where's the fact, you know, the the FBI is out here or law enforcement. And I, I wonder if that valet called a lot of people, right? <laughs> there are probably all sorts of drug deals going on. Wow. But um, it was so horrible um they immediately because they had done this route and done this so often and the new person coming into it was the other informant that was the the person that was not in the equation and they immediately blamed that other informant and then my informant introduced that informant and she got a hold of me i was in a you know in a room very close. And she said, 
and please forgive me and everybody who knows me or hears me over talk i never cussed but he said she said they're fucking gonna kill me mm-hmm. and i said all right we're getting you out and so um you know we devised a an excuse and we got him out and really nothing was ever trusted like it was before i and she was terrified of mm. being murdered and so we really then after that worked toward taking it down just really worked off the wire for the short period after that wow um that's i mean what what kind of um like responsibility and weight do you feel on your shoulders obviously you're i mean this is a person's life right so if uh something happens and it's on your watch you obviously do not want that happening right oh yeah no and, and it's happened you know uh fbi informants have died um bad things have happened and there's a lot of responsibility and and um you know the fbi world at least the world i worked in on ds2 which was my squad and with my supervisor which was dick ludwig this was not things have changed a lot in the bureau but back in these days this was paramilitary Mm -hmm. if you were told to go stand on your head you stood on your head Mm -hmm. you know if you messed up you you had consequences and i'll tell you about a funny time i was punished this is just i'll tell you real quick because it's not really about a case but it was about this wire it was Mm -hmm. about this wire and remember this wire went on for i want to say a year and a half So your life, my life for my first really six years in the bureau, I was an absolute Betty Bureau. I was married to the FBI. I didn't date. My whole world was the FBI. I wasn't married, no kids. And um, I was actually going, I I got my vacation of two days, right? You can leave Friday and then you can have Saturday and Sunday, but I was supposed to be back Sunday night. And I actually was meeting my, who ended up being my husband in Colorado to ski. You know, this was like our second date, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, he lived in LA. I lived in Houston. We really didn't date per se. But um, anyway, I go there and we had such a great time. Like we're snow skiing. It's just a perfect time. Uh And I call my boss, Ludwig. I said, Dick. Can I, or Mr. Ledwig, I never called him Dick, sorry. <laughs> I never called him Dick when he was there. No, just kidding. <laughs> Mr. Ludwig, can I stay one more day? I promise I'll come back. I, I mean, I had worked tirelessly. All of us had. All of us yeah. had. So I wasn't special. And he said, Jennifer, I'm going to let you make that decision. You let me know what you decide. Whoa. Guilt trip. I made a terrible decision, Joel. <laughs> you stayed. I stayed. I stayed one more day. I got back to the office Tuesday. Jennifer. Oh boy. <laughs> I was talking to Ever back then. I came into the office. I'm not going to say all the expletives. There were a lot of expletives. I think a stapler blew past me. <laughs> and he said, You've totally let your team down had to get other people to cover your shifts, had to get other people to manage the surveillance, had to get other people to do what you do. So guess what? 
beautiful car you seized a few months ago, that new car you're driving around, that's going to somebody else. I want you to go up on the fifth or sixth floor, however tall it was, of the parking garage. And I want you to find that Jeep Cherokee that's 12 years old that's been retired. Oh, boy. I want you to get up into that Jeep. And like it didn't even have a cushion that was intact. It was springs. And he goes, and every time your ass hits those springs, I want you to remember how you let your team down. Oh, boy. Okay. Now, this was just being late or, or, or you know, staying an extra day. All right. So if I would have gotten my informant murdered. <laughs> oh, my. oh, my God. But this guy I ended up being your husband. So maybe it was a good call. So it was a good call. Yeah. So uh, I love those stories, by the way, because you learn a lot uh, in in life uh, when you're working. Um, so obviously, I would assume that the the goal of Los Tios was to get to the brothers, right? Was that the ultimate goal? And uh, how do you get how do you get to the big fish? Well, you know how we got to the big fish was first of all, there was a lot of surveillance. And it really came down to getting the money back to them, right? Because even though there were so many layers between them and the money and the distribution, and I mean, it was just this gigantic spider web of people getting this to the street people, right? Selling two, three kilos, which really isn't the street, but that's that's about how low we went. Other than that, if you weren't a two or three, four kilo dealer, uh, we did not do anything with you. So you got to work it back. And, and I was so um, really blessed, Joel, after this case, um, I got a call and got the opportunity. And this was really a highlight of my career at the time. Uh, this was, again, at the end of the case, Janet Reno, mm -hmm. who was the attorney general at the time, contacted me and said, listen, Jen, I want to talk to a street agent. Like I hear all day long what the muckety mucks are saying, how we can combat crime. I just want a street agent's point of view. And so I flew up to Washington, D.C., met now, with why, her. It uh, was why, it was such yeah, an what, honor. How'd she choose you? Do you know? Did you ever ask her why you of all the agents? I think a lot of it was this case. Uh -huh. um, this was one of the cases that, you know, I got a lot of um, honors from the U.S. Attorney's Office, from the FBI. Uh, 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 accolades and things like that. And uh, it it's not, I don't know how rare it is because to be honest, as an agent, I worked the cases I worked with my squad, right? So I wasn't really necessarily paying attention to what other, except for in Houston, I knew what cases, like they took down uh, Juan Garcia Abrego, uh, DS1 squad. That was a serious case. Um, but um, it's it's slightly rare, I think, to take down an organization clear back to Columbia at that time. And so I think that was part of it. Another part of it was I was on her protection detail because I was on SWAT mm -hmm. and I was on her protection detail when she came to Houston. And um, so, you know, we had some conversations there. She was such an engaging person. Yeah. Uh, you know, in other words, what are you working with? You know, and then, of course, so what, was, what was that like? You get flown up to D.C. and uh, how does that what do you do? You knock on her door? <laughs> <laughs> no, she has uh, a person. She had a person, um, very nice gentleman 
who, you know, came down and met me, took me up to her offices. Of course, I worked in D.C. and worked downtown at headquarters, so uh, later in my career. Um, but yeah, no, he came down and got me. And um, I had uh, communicated with him several times prior to meeting with her uh, just to run by him what I was going to say, what my thoughts were, uh, which was really good to sort of vet all of that and then for him to ask questions of me and for me to think outside of, you know, even what I was going to present. It was an honor, Joel. I I don't know how to say it other than that. It was her and I. It was in her big, huge office. Um, She's such a smart lady. No matter your politics, no matter whether you liked her, you know, she took a lot of heat over Waco and other things, but... Yeah. Uh, she was she was genuine and she was real and she really wanted to make an impact. And I talked to her. So the bottom line is how we got this case, which is back to your question. Yeah. You follow the money. You mm-hmm. you you know the dope goes where the dope goes. But if you want to get at the head of the snake, you follow the money. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did in this case. And that's what I talked to her about. You know, really twofold: the importance of tightening the winch. And making the guidelines super high related to the street dealers, the guys that are selling five $10 rocks on the corner, you know, you give them a lot. You know why? And and we did. I mean, we had a, a case where uh, people got life. Now, that ended up being reversed, some of those sentences later on when mm-hmm. they, they started saying, oh, my God, we're bulging at the seams and these guys were just selling rocks on the street. But the point was when you get people to, it's too much of a risk to sell rocks because I could go to jail for the rest of my life mm-hmm. when 50 grams is going to get me a life sentence potentially. You had people starting to sort of move away from crack, which was ruining our communities, ruining our kids, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't and think then I said realize in the nineties, crack was the Yeah, it was hooray. It was kind of like the fentanyl is today. Like that's killing people. Um, hundred percent. That's what I equate it to. Yeah. which And that's why they got to come down on the fentanyl. They got to come down on the street people. Cause once you, you know, tighten that and then you follow the money and get the people on the money. And I, I mean, that's just my, my thoughts of what worked when I was an agent. But so how do you follow the money? Like, it's got to be tricky. I mean, because again, like your sights are on the two brothers. So um, how do you do that? How does, how does the story sort of end up? So how the story ended up, how we got the brothers. Um, and this was fun. We ended up, okay, again in Miami. We had multiple trips to Miami. On this particular trip, the... Money, you're going to laugh about this, but the money, I mean, at how it really works, the money was put in a car, in a trunk. So we're already several removed from my informant, okay, by now on this particular piece. So the money, you know, went to somebody who went to somebody who went to somebody. We're following all of this. And finally, this redheaded, actually, he was a redheaded Colombian. Hmm. The redheaded Colombian parks the car that finally gets to him in a shopping center in Miami. And he takes the key. So in the trunk is the million or 2 million. I can't remember what that particular time was. And he 
takes the keys. You're not even going to believe this. I mean, we're clicking away on surveillance. And there was some shrubs that are outside the the, the, the mall. And he yeah. drops them in the shrubs. Oh and he God. walks in the mall. So then crazy. hours later, somebody is like over there. You know, where's the keys, right? I'm sure he described it. It's the third bush. <laughs> are you guys are you guys like you're obviously the people are you doing surveillance at this point or you have a, just a team that does that? Are you oh, actually doing surveillance with the team? I mean, you whenever are. my informant went somewhere and this is so right now she's now safe what? and sound in another faraway hotel, still yeah. in Miami. And I'm when they, I'm when they, when they drop in the bushes, are you like, holy crap, I hope some <laughs> like homeless guy doesn't find it and walk away and, and because he's gonna be a dead man, right? Like that's gotta be freaky, right? <laughs> Well, of course, then he wouldn't even know what car to use it on, <laughs> right? But but I think people think that a lot of these, how this works is way more sophisticated than it really is and mm -hmm. was. And it's really not. What it is is dogged persistence, right? You're mm -hmm. sitting there for hours waiting for things to happen, waiting for somebody to get those keys. So we're all, you know, there's a team of whatever, five or six of us. Uh, because you have to have multiple vehicles, right? Because once this does go, you've got to be able to leapfrog. You've got to be able to keep this person under surveillance and yeah. not be. How, how far are you? So how far are you from like where this guy parks in the shopping center? How far are you? Well, the good thing about shopping centers is that you don't really stick out, right? There's all sorts of people there. Nobody's really yeah. paying attention. But there is a problem with counter surveillance because there's no way they're leaving that millions of dollars there and not having counter surveillance. Got it. Right. That's a big problem mm. because they've got it under surveillance too. I mean, that guy might've gone in the mall, but you can yeah. guarantee he's lurking around. He's got people, there's people in cars. So that's, it's tricky. It's wow. tricky. We're close. We have an eye at all times. At least one agent has an eye on those keys and an eye on the car. Wow. And we're using, you know, air support, you know, this is before drones. Mm -hmm. uh, we have trackers, but we're not using a tracker because everything's way too fast moving, right? You have to get a warrant and you yeah. have to get a tracker. You have to get emergency authorization. There's no real emergency. We're right there. Anyway, bottom line is, is this sack of money. And this money wasn't in a duffel bag on this occasion. This was in a white, like huge shopping bags, like <laughs> double you know, like you would get it bills or something. Yeah, you got to definitely double bag that. Yeah. It's double bag. <laughs> and anyway, guy comes now, he gets the keys, gets in the car, drives. We're following. He goes to a house in Miami. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you're in a residential neighborhood. It's really tough. It's tough to surveil. You have to be far away. You, you really, it's really tough. Um, but we, we see, we don't get up too up close and personal. Anyway, the bottom line is we end up, um, the TOs end up touching those bags. Mm -hmm. And this is how we know. Then later now, of course, we got our eyes on everything, right? Yeah. Forever. Finally, those bags then get picked up again. Wow. Now we need to take the bags down. Because we got our guys looped into it. 
we take the bags down. And this was my, my favorite lab call. And when you're working these cases, at least for me, I mean, I was on a first name basis with the lab people, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're always constantly waiting on everything from, uh, you know, what's that percentage of, especially when working crack, you know, percentages mattered. What's the percentage of Coke? Are there mm-hmm. fingerprints? What do we have on these bags? And there was a, not of both of them, but of one of them, Walt Tio, I'll call him. Mm. His fingerprint was on the bag. Wow. His fingerprint was on the bag. <sighs> and so now we know, and we had a better case against Oscar was the other. We had a better case against Oscar because the informant was able to overhear and see conversations. And then we could, over, I mean, and report on them. And then we had wires going. So Oscar, we had the, the goods with. Walter, we were working on, and that's what got Walter. Wow. Wow. Um, so you get the actual, you know, the DNA, the fingerprints that you need. Now, the house that th- this guy drove up to to drop the bags, that's not the TO's his house. Is it? It's not their house, is it? It was someone else's house, right? I mean, it's somebody else's house. I mean, they're from Columbia. You know, okay. they're just. They just come in and out of town to check out things. I believe, you know, we did not take that oh, so, house down. I think it was a money counting house. So Walt and Oscar actually live in Columbia, the two TOs? Oh, yeah. They never lived. I mean, they had a really beautiful, beautiful, like upscale high rise apartment here mm-hmm. in Houston, in Houston, not Houston. in Miami. Um, but, but they you, were seldom. They're back and forth. Yeah, but do you end up taking them down here in the, in, in the States? Okay, so now, fast forward mm-hmm. to, remember I told you when everything went to tech yeah. in Miami yeah. on a different trip? Mm-hmm. So now we have to take everything down, right? So we're working on everything, putting everything together. Well, guess what? The TOs and um, the other two major players that were right underneath them, which was actually a sister and a brother-in-law and then two other guys, they get wind somehow that we're going to take this whole thing down. Everybody of our top players goes back to Columbia. I mean, everybody. Mm. But our distribution network stays. So we take down everything. We we take down everything in Chicago. We take down everything in New York. We take down everything in Miami. I mean, we bring it down. We indict 50 is that people. Done, is that, I'm sorry, is that done on like, do you guys have to do that on the same day at the same time with different squads so people can't get away? Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, what? it's a huge conglomeration SWAT you know these are high high risk and it's remember it's not just like one person in Chicago we had multiple people in Chicago multiple distribution networks that they had gone the cocaine had been delivered to um so we took it all down and not to mention Houston which was the main hub we took down all of them too this was a huge orchestrated effort with case agents you know, the case agent I worked with in Chicago, his name was Mike. The case agent in New York was um, Joey D. And then the case agent in um, Miami. Oh, my God, he's going to kill me. I can picture him. Anyway. Oh, please don't kill me. Hopefully he won't see this. I'm so sorry. It'll, it'll come back. It'll come back. He's, he's going to kill me. 
Oh my God, such a great agent too. Anyway, yeah, no, we orchestrated everything. And then of course, um, on the Houston end, you know, I handled all of that. And then as the overall case agent, myself and Rich handled all the coordinations. Um, But this is what I was getting to. They leave, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just so disheartening. And so we're working on all of our cases, you know, working everything up. Because even though those offices arrest them, they're charged in Houston. So everybody ends up back in Houston. And all the top name defense attorneys, uh, specifically the Daguerans who were the best of the best uh, in terms of criminal law. They're like the um, uh, Mark Garagoses of of the, the times in Houston. Yeah. yeah, but all of the top names, right? Mm-hmm. And so everybody's got an attorney, everybody's there, but we don't have our Los Tios and we're bummed. So then get this, months later, months later, through a different informant, I find out that they're back in town. They're back in town distributing. They're setting everything up again. I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> and, then, and then they say, yeah, they usually go to this little um, like Cuban uh, um, like breakfast lunch place down off of 59. It's in, in South, um, you know, kind of like Southeast Houston. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? So I, again, you just write rumors. You hear this. So Every morning, I lived in a place called Sugarland. So mm-hmm. 59 was on my way up to the office. And I would get and, and I would get off and I'd go and check out that that little shop. And every time nobody was there. <laughs> I did this for like two weeks, Joel. And then this is the fortuitous part. One time, because what I'd like to do is go there early, because supposedly they ate breakfast there. I'd uh-huh. like to go there early. And then get to work by eight, you know, eight fifteen. Yeah. Well, this particular morning I was running late, Joel. So I was like, oh God, I'm gonna be late to the office. Oh well, I'm going there. And I got there more like nine. I mean, to the restaurant. Yeah. There, there, Joel. There, there. Aren't you sticking out like a sore thumb in this place, though? No, no, look at me. I'm Puerto Rican. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm very, very Puerto Rican. I just don't wear my, I mean, all my family's in Puerto Rico. It's I hilarious. No I, I would never or, know. You never know. No one knows. That you, yeah. I, I, I'm still undercover. <laughs> yeah. So you're speaking Espanol. Okay. I didn't know that. All right. So you're well, in there. Actually, I don't even go in, right? I yeah. pull up and I look in and they're there. I mean, I see through the window. I'm like, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe this. So I get on the radio and I'm like, you know, uh, all DS2 units in the area, DS2, DS1, DS3, I, you know, this is DS5. I'm here. This is the address. I'm at whatever it was, Hillcrest and whatever. And I said, I have Los Tios. I'm looking at them. And, and, you know, I'm calling everybody, please come help. And, um, Everybody's like, oh, my God, I'm so far away. I'm so far away. Okay, we're on the way. So everybody, everybody's coming, right? Yeah. Guess what? They take off. They decide to get up. They're done with breakfast. Oh, God. And then one of them actually comes out and looks at me because I'm sitting in the car and I'm sitting in kind of a cop-like car. And I get out and I literally start stretching. 
Yeah. <laughs> literally, like I'm stretching, like, I mean, I don't know what to do, but I don't. And then they see me and they're like, oh, that's, that's not a cop. Yeah. They go I back in. They're all loading up and one guy gets there in time and his name's Kevin. He's uh -huh. still alive too. Um, Kevin and I are there and, and I go, dude, we got to take this right now. We got in a lot of trouble for this, by the way. Holy shit. So, <laughs> this would never happen now. But back wow. in the running. So this is days, you and Kevin and Los Tios. And, and Los Tios are right there. Oh my God. And we. We should have never. We got in trouble, actually. We did yeah. get in a lot of trouble. And I'm not saying this was the right thing to do. Mm. I, look, look at, I was in my 20s. I yeah. mean, I was young. Yeah. And and I was so excited and, and put so much into this case. We go in guns and blazing, not blazing. We go yeah. in guns in hand. Mm -hmm. And we're like, FBI, FBI. He goes this way, I go this way. Get down, get down, get down. You know? Oh, my God. Everybody did get down to... Two of them did run out the back door, but we got them. We got wow. there within a day. You know, we ended up getting them. And we arrested that restaurant. Wow. What did what did the two brothers do? It's Oscar and Walt. What did they do? They got well, down? Remember, Oscar and Walt are probably close to 50. Uh-huh. Not that that's old, Joel. Not no, no not at all. At that time. Now they're probably 80, but. Yeah. And, I mean, they get down. Wow. They get down. I mean, we're we got guns. Yeah. And and they don't know what we're gonna do. Probably they probably thought these two people are insane for doing this. I can't believe I'm admitting this, but it's not like people don't know. And people will watch this that are in law enforcement and go, What? You know, that was just terrible. It was rogue. I, my nickname was Rogue in the Bureau. I, I mean, they even got me a shirt shirt that was in green rogue. I'm not proud of that. I'm just being honest with But what do you happened. go and cuff them first? Like, what do you do? Oh, oh yeah. No, no. Uh, yes. But we, we just held guns down on them. And then finally, after what seemed like an eternity, which was probably more like four or five minutes, mm -hmm. finally, reinforcements came and we got everybody arrested. But uh, Josue, he escaped and uh, one other person escaped. But like I said, we got him within a day because once we knew they were in town, then we knew, you know, through mm -hmm. informants and everything, we made it happen. Um, and and I got in trouble for that. I'm not going to say I didn't. That's like, I, I got kind of like uh, good trouble, though. I mean, I'm, secretly the bosses were probably happy, right? Secretly. Yeah, I think secretly. Uh, secretly, I think the U.S. Attorney's Office and the bosses were happy. Um, and and everything worked out. Nobody got hurt. I mean, again, these big guys, they didn't even have guns on them. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, now, the two that left might have. Um, but these guys didn't have guns. These are businessmen. And we took them down and it was good. Wow. That's, that, that is crazy. So you get the two of them on this whim. I assume that they eventually get indicted and um, are they in prison? Not anymore. Um, these guys always get that's out. That's another good thing I learned in my career. Uh, we were ready for trial. All of it wasn't 50 people in this particular section, right? Because we had the Miami, the New York, all these different factions. But this was about 15 that we were going to trial with this particular trial date. And um, Rich and I worked our butts off getting that case ready with all the Title III information, all the surveillance. Just every, I can't even tell you how much work it was. And we all sat in there. 
And right before opening statements, they all 15 fled. Really? Now, there's nothing that can make anybody more angry as an agent. The prosecution team was happy, I think. Not not Rich and I. We're like, we're ready. We've worked our butts off. And we want that. This was a life sentence. Yeah. You know, there was so much cocaine. This was a life sentence. And instead, they got in the neighborhood of about 15 years. Wow. that's And I was not happy. Rich and I were... Is that is it scary for you that these guys could be out in 15 years? Do you feel like they're going to come and like exact revenge or you guys are just kind of the FBI that'll leave you alone? Um, you know, there's, I think as an agent, I had, uh, six different, uh, threats, um, you know, against me. Uh, many of them were right in court, like people screaming at me, I'm going to kill you, you know, going wow. crazy. But the one thing that happens, and, um, and and the bureau is great at making sure you know you're protected and and you know uh, giving what you need during these times and doing full investigations of the people making the threat. And uh, could they? I do kind of worry. Back then, I had a different last name, so I don't think they could look me out. Now that I'm in media, would they even recognize me? All these years later, th- I look a lot different, Joel. <laughs> I look a lot different. Um, Would they recognize me? You know, I don't know. But when you take people's money and Mm -hmm. people's power away and they're sitting there rotting in jail for 15 years, um, they probably got out and they're sick. I remember thinking they're going to be about 62, 63 when they get out. Yeah. Um, I always think about it, but I, you know, I have major security at my house. Like it's crazy. I got cameras, I got motion sensors, I got because I guess I am a little paranoid. Yeah. Um, so whatever happened to the informant, the female, the good looking girlfriend, where where'd she end up? Yeah. So after we took everything down and then when she had to testify on the portion of the the case against one of the Miami distributors, and this guy was scary. He had gone to prison already for murder. He was from Cuba. He was a bad guy. And that was the guy that fought. And so here we were both on the stand. Now, he got more like 25 years. Um, But still, that's back probably. We took that case to court in probably 95. Um, So, but anyway, uh, we had to put her in hiding. And I really wanted her to go through the U.S. Marshal Service because they have, they're the best at the best at putting you in hiding. Mm-hmm. But there's probably like witness. For, this is witness protection. Yeah. Yeah. They run that program. And it's like I said, that's, that's the Ritz Carlton of witness protection programs, but it comes with a heavy price. You're not allowed to talk with anybody ever again. Wow. Wow. So you're done. Like, Tell your mom, tell your dad. I mean, if you do it right. Really? That's so crazy. So she wasn't willing to do that and I couldn't blame her. So we did kind of a modified version. Um, I went to court with her and stood with her. We got her name changed. Mm -hmm. Um, We relocated her from Houston to another city. Um, We did everything we possibly could uh, to make sure she was never found. And nobody ever found her. 
Wow. But they did find Walt and Oscar. This is so crazy. What an amazing story. Yeah, Glad sorry. You- I, I droned on about it. So feel free no. to cut out whatever you need. <laughs> no, no way. Um, well, listen, Jennifer Koffendoffer uh, is an, uh, she's an American hero. This woman, she uh, served the FBI and uh, put away bad guys. 28 years uh, in the FBI, and you heard she was also a member of SWAT. Uh, Jennifer Koffendoffer, thank you for joining us on Surviving My Biggest Case. Love this story. Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) Bye. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.